We're going to have our reading, which is in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, for your presence, and we ask for you to speak to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. We're actually going to be covering quite a few verses this morning, starting in verse 23 of chapter 2, but the part that David read was just something that we wanted to use to frame the verses this morning. Last week, we took a look at how the religious establishment of Jesus' day judged their spiritual practice of fasting, and today we'll look at their disagreement about the Sabbath. Now, some of you in here may be thinking, like, who in the world cares about disagreements in Sabbath and in fasting? What's the big deal if people are disagreeing about spiritual practices? It just seems like a petty thing to be talking about, a petty argument, and not something that all people would be interested in. Well, the conflict is not simply about the differences in opinion about spiritual practices. What we're looking at are the power structures that are in place that oppress people and how Jesus came to turn all of that upside down. How he came to set people free from this oppression, religious and social oppression from the Pharisees and the scribes, a political and social oppression from the Romans. And so Jesus came on the scene to establish this theological authority and to reorient people to the heart of God. See, Jesus' life was not endangered because he disagreed about fasting and the Sabbath. That's not why they want to kill him, right? That's petty. That's not what people want to kill you for. And so we want to look at Mark chapter 3, verse 6, before we jump into the rest of the verses. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So it's not simply a dispute about spiritual disciplines. It was a threat to the existing power structures that held the people in bondage. Jesus was a threat to the Pharisees, the religious, the social establishment, and the Herodians, the political and the social establishment. And he was a threat spiritually, socially, politically, and all these different systems that were in place, they were extremely oppressive to the people, and that's why they want to kill him. And part of this oppression was exercised in dictating when people can eat and when they can't eat, when they can take a day off of work and when they can't. So when Jesus said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, back in verse 5 of chapter 2, that was threatening because they had no such power 
or authority over such spiritual matters, even though they were the religious leaders of that day. The religious leaders were amazed at first, right? They were like, oh, wow, check this guy out. It's amazing. Look at what he's doing. And in chapter 1, Jesus delivered a man with an unclean spirit, and his fame spread throughout the region of Galilee. And people began bringing their sick to him and demon-possessed, and he healed them. And Jesus' fame and his influence, it spread, and the authority grew to become such a threat that they recognized that it was something beyond their control. That it wasn't just something that was kind of cute anymore or something that was novel. And Jesus would go against the religious protocol and he'd heal a leper by touching him. And then risking, or actually making himself by touching him, ceremonially unclean. He goes on to pronounce this paralytic's sins forgiven, something that only God can do. And then he chose a tax collector, someone, any good practicing Jew was not going to associate with as part of his own group. Not only this, but he and the disciples broke bread with many tax collectors and sinners. And when the Pharisees tried to make an issue about it over fasting, Jesus puts them in their place. Then the Pharisees attempted to pick another fight over the Sabbath. And in all of these conflicts, those in power are trying to figure out, who is this guy? How is he getting away with what he's doing? Where's his authority coming from? They could not forgive sins, and it appeared that Jesus was. They would politic their way into different relationships so that they could gain power and influence with those who already had power and who already had influence, mainly those oppressors. But Jesus chose fishermen. He chose a tax collector. He served the oppressed. He healed the sick. He healed Simon's mother-in-law, who was probably just your everyday woman, not someone of nobility, not someone of prominence, touching a leper, eating with everyday people. Yet his influence and his power grew, and he had authority, and they couldn't understand. How can that be? That's not how things work. How could this man, Jesus, just show up and upset all this authority that we've established and this religious rule? This religious rule which had within it many, many man-made rules, hundreds of them. And so the Pharisees added to the scriptures hundreds of laws on top of the Torah, on top of the Pentateuch. They just added a bunch of these laws, rules that helped them keep their power, rules that ensured that they would have the upper hand. Everything Jesus did didn't involve them, didn't involve their extra rules, and it didn't fit the formula as to how to grow power, how to grow authority, how to grow influence. Before Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians decided who was in and who was out. Jesus comes on the scene and he totally messes this thinking up. And so Jesus is this unshrunk cloth in this old garment. He's the new wine in this old wineskin. And so we'll see the Pharisees following Jesus. And it's just like, it's so random what we're going to read here. It's like whack-a-mole, right? Verse 23, chapter 2. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grains. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So my question is, where did that dude come from? Like, it's just a poof. 
hey, I mean, shouldn't you be in like the synagogue or like at a city gate or something? Like, no, he just kind of pops out of the grain field. You shouldn't eat that grain. These guys were following Jesus, even to a grain field, to catch them, his followers, and whatever they were doing against, according to the law, they want to catch him at this. And in verse 24, they're accused of working by plucking heads of grain, and instead of arguing with them, Jesus pointed them to the scriptures. Verse 25, and he said to them, have you never read what David did? Of course they read it. When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Point being, the spirit of the Sabbath was not broken. There was a need, there was a hunger, and that came before this religious ceremony. What the disciples were doing was similar to what David did. There was a need, there was hunger, so they plucked some grain to eat. The Sabbath was made for us, right? It's to bless us. It's for our benefit. It wasn't meant to be another rule to burden the people with by keeping another rule. And in this story of David, Jesus made quite the statement. I don't know if you're catching this, but... He has essentially put himself in the place of David. And so what's interesting is you look at the time period in which this story takes place, and it's really insightful. Because the prophet Samuel had already anointed David as king. But yet he was on the run from King Saul when this happened. And while he's on the run, people were gathering around David. And his team was being assembled, and David was kind of choosing his guys. And they were waiting for his time to come, waiting for him to take the throne. And so here, Jesus has been anointed king by God. But his time has not yet come. But he is king. And people were gathering around him. And he's assembling his team. And they're waiting for their time to come. Verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, Son of Man is a reference back to the book of Daniel. It's a designation Jesus uses for himself. And just as Jesus announced authority to forgive sins, here he announced authority over Sabbath to represent how Sabbath was made for us to bless us and to safeguard it against any misrepresentation as the Pharisees were doing. And so what we have in chapter 3 is this other misrepresentation. And Jesus will show himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 3, verse 1. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. This is really messed up. The Pharisees were using this man's disability so that they can accuse Jesus of breaking a religious law. I mean, that's messed up. Jesus is not against the Sabbath. He practiced the Sabbath. Jesus practiced the Sabbath. The difference between Jesus and the religious order is that the Sabbath was not abused by Jesus. Verses 3 and 4, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? 
but they were silent. Now their silence tells us a lot about the condition of their hearts. It tells us that they know that the way that they were practicing the Sabbath was not good. Sabbath speaks of creation. It speaks of redemption. And that message of creation and redemption was damaged by the way that the Pharisees practiced it. Verse 5, and he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So here Jesus emotes anger, and it wasn't merely over the misrepresentation of how fasting was practiced or how Sabbath was practiced. The anger was about this misrepresentation of God. How their hardened hearts as religious leaders made it difficult for people to see the heart of God, to see the grace of God. They can't even answer whether it's lawful to do good or to do harm. I mean, everyone knows the answer to that. Is it lawful to save a life or to kill it? Everyone knows that answer. And what Jesus told this man to do is actually kind of puzzling. He asked a man to stretch out your hand, to stretch out his hand. The man's hand is shriveled. Jesus, why in the world are you asking him to stretch it out? Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just heal it? Why wouldn't you just kind of fix it? And it's not all that much different when he called Simon, Andrew, James, John, Levi to follow him. It's not all that different from when he told the paralytic to rise, take up his bed, and walk. These are all calls of faith from Jesus. And calls to faith from his followers. For us to exercise our faith. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Now this alliance between the Herodians And the scribes and Pharisees, this is not something that they kind of want to do. They don't like each other. These factions don't like each other. So Caiaphas is leading the church. He's the high priest there. And Pontius Pilate, he's the leader of the Herodians in this area. And so these two groups here don't like each other. But Jesus proves such a threat to them that, you know, they decide to work together so that they can kill Jesus which I find is a huge hypocrisy here, right? Because Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder, which these guys obviously know, and yet they want to kill this guy, right? We fast religiously, we keep Sabbath religiously, but eh, murder, you know, it's okay. You know, it's not a big thing. Let's just do that one. And so the Pharisees, they actually needed the Herodians to pull something off because they don't have all that much power, Sure, they have a lot of influence in Jewish circles and they have some political influence with the Herodians, but they did not make any of the laws of the land. And they had a ton of religious laws, but the Herodians, as representatives of Rome, were the ones who really had the power to make and enforce laws. And if they wanted to do anything in regards to capital punishment, it would have to be at the okay of the Romans. And so, What was in it for the Herodians? Well, the Pharisees did have quite a bit of influence with the people, and the Herodians want to keep things peaceful because they're running into some issues of how to keep the peace during this time. And so if there is any sort of insurrectionist 
that the Pharisees have identified, well, their ears are going to perk up and there's going to be a willingness to help. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So this scene happens seaside. And we see that although the Pharisees and the Herodians are not fond of Jesus, a lot of people are. And there was this great crowd that followed him, and understandably so. All of John the Baptist's disciples heard of Jesus. There were a good number of people at Jesus' baptism who witnessed the heavens being torn open, the Spirit descending like a dove, and heard a voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. People in Capernaum, in that synagogue there, witnessed him rebuke and remove an unclean spirit from a man which spread his fame throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The whole city gathered at the door of Simon's mother-in-law's house as Jesus brought her to health from sickness. He healed and made a man with leprosy clean. That man spread the news about Jesus, and when Jesus returned to Capernaum, many gathered together so that there was no more room even at the door, and there a paralytic was brought through the roof of a house, and Jesus forgave him of his sins and healed him of his paralysis. Crowds were coming to him, and he was teaching them, sinners included. One was Levi, tax collector, whom he ate with amongst Many tax collectors and sinners. And with these crowds, the Pharisees and the scribes, they kind of tagged along. And whenever they'd kind of say something, Jesus would school them a little bit. And all of this helped him grow in popularity. Do we have an accurate picture of Jesus? From the first three chapters of Mark, it's so evident that Jesus is not passive, that Jesus is not weak. Jesus attracted great crowds, and it was because he was saying revolutionary things. He was doing miraculous things. The Pharisees and the Herodians didn't want to kill Jesus because they disagreed with him on fasting and Sabbath. It was because he personified this force of resistance to their oppressive power. He was going to redefine life and how to live a flourishing life through him. And Jesus was quite the revolutionary. And the power establishments at that time could not ignore him, and nor could the everyday people throughout the region ignore him. Crowds followed Jesus from all over the region that the only way he could have some space was to get out on a boat in the sea as the crowd was just kind of encroaching him on the land. And we see this in verses 7 through 10 in chapter 3. We see in verse 11 that unclean spirits already knew who Jesus was, but in verse 12, Jesus does not want them to make him known. Why is this? Well, it's not their message to deliver. I mean, they're not the apostles, they're not the sent ones, they're not the disciples. It wasn't a message for them to be entrusted with. And then the scene changes from the sea to this mountain, verses 13 through 19. 
And he went up on the mountain and called to him whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12 Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Any of you looking for the next name of a child? That one's awesome. <laughs> Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And so this group of people changed the world. Now if we pause to think about this, it's just really bizarre. There's no military, financial, political power in this group. There's no technological innovation. These aren't leaders or the elite of their day. But this is so God. This is how he works. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 25 through 31. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is so God. This is how God works. Think about the first people to hear about Jesus' birth. Shepherds. right? Shepherds who... Their testimonies were not accepted in court. And so if they were to herald the message that Messiah came, it was to be thrown out. That testimony is not accepted. You're a shepherd. And they were also considered unclean. And yet they are the ones entrusted first about Messiah. That's how God chose to reveal himself first and to have them share the news first. That's so God. Jesus was born from a poor, unwed, teenage mom. You ever think about that? From an insignificant town placed in a manger with swaddling cloths. And it's not exactly how a king is pictured to arrive on a throne. As a leader, you surround yourself with a good team. Right? That's how you build a great team. You surround yourself with a great team. Jesus picked four fishermen and a tax collector before we get to verse 13 where they meet on the mountain. And you notice that this is not like the temple boardroom. This is not the high priest's house. This is not Herod's palace. It's just a mountain. Not even given the name. It's not like Mount Hermon or Gilboa. It's insignificant. Insignificant town little region of the Roman Empire. And we get to verses 13 and 19, and there's no one there that makes you think 
those guys are going to change the world. I mean, who out of those 12 guys you look at and you're like, wow, that's how they did it. It's because of them. Like, Levi was just great with numbers. It's not true. The guy stole from people, right? Like, fishermen, they could eat a lot. Like, I don't, what do you... They're not highly educated. They're not wise. They're not powerful. They're not of noble birth. They're not wealthy. They're just average, probably foolish, probably weak, probably low. And none of them could boast about what happened because it was all God, all of it. Jesus called them, named them apostles, sent once, right? But before Jesus sent them out, you look at verse 14, he appointed so that they might be with him. Jesus loved and he cared for them. He desired to equip them and to invest in them before sending them out to be with them. And the investment of being with Jesus, it paid off really big. You look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Communing with Jesus, being with Jesus. You know, there's no better training ground, there's no better education for life than just being with Jesus. Now, why were they with him? To be more like him. We won't be more like Jesus if we don't invest time with Jesus. Now, we look at Jesus appointing 12. Like, why is it 12? Why did he pick 12? Like, is that the most opportune number to work with? Like, it's not too many, it's not too little, and all the books of leadership say 12, right? That's why... No, you got to think back to the Jewish mindset. Jewish mindset, number 12, what do you automatically think of? Tribes. I mean, you guys aren't even Jews, you know this, right? 12 tribes of Israel, that's what it is. Now, with these 12, Jesus has founded a new Israel. An Israel that will reach every tribe. It will reach every nation. It will go to the outer ends of the world. The prophets foretold of this coming restoration, and many Jews knew of this. Many Jews hoped for this. They believed that God would make them a great nation again and would deliver them from the hands of their oppressors. So all of those around Jesus who saw him call 12 disciples who were set apart from the masses and he gave them special designations as apostles, those who were sent out would recognize that this was not just a man with a group set out to do miracles, that this was a mission of restoration. And it was a restoration that was comprehensive. It wasn't just a physical and a spiritual one, but also a social and political one. For this group to work and to bring restoration to the world, which it did, would take a miracle from God, which it was. Simon, Andrew, James, and John were all fishermen. Levi was a tax collector. Levi probably directly cheated those fishermen through taxation. And out of these four, we know Simon Peter. He had this foot and mouth disease, right? He always put his foot into his mouth. And he had this impulse to do things, like jump out of a boat and like say things or whatever, right? And he just kind of seemed to act before thinking. 
And we also know that Jesus gave James and John the nickname of Sons of Thunder. Those guys probably had some major tood. They probably got that name for a reason. Right? And there were probably a few exciting interactions within this group, I would think. And then they had Simon the Zealot who hated Rome. And you think that, you know, between fishermen and tax collectors, that was going to be bad. Jesus kind of throws a wrench in there and like, I'm going to invite a terrorist into our group. Like, yeah, yeah, like this, yeah, it's exciting, like great, right? And so they invite a terrorist into the group. And within this group, again, is Levi, who worked for the Romans. You think there was a little tension there? When Levi saw that Simon was invited, he was like, Jesus, can I sleep next to you? Like, I'm, Jesus, can I sleep next to you tonight? And so Levi was very popular in this group amongst the four fishermen. And I mean, he was like, Jesus. Like, he was like right there. And so, you know, if it weren't for like skinny jeans that Levi passed out to all the disciples and the hipster movement, like who knows what would have happened to him. Like he, he just kind of made it in. So we don't know all that much about the others though. Isn't that fascinating? We don't know that much about the other guys. And the things that we do know about these other guys are just kind of like trivial things. I mean, they're not like deep things. But something interesting to point out is that all of them were believed to be in their late teens. Did you know that? Like 19. That's who changed the world. So you younger folks, you have the potential to change the world. And if you look at world history, who leads worldwide resistant movements? Who leads those resistance movements? I mean, look at the news today. Look at the world today. Look at Charlotte and what's happening. Who's leading those things? It's the young people. Just look at the news. Now, another character to point out is Judas Iscariot. We know a little more about him. And it's scary to think that someone so close to Jesus is so far from Jesus. To know Jesus, his teachings, and his character, and to still betray him? And Jesus loved him, and his grace extended to Judas, but it wasn't accepted. Unlike Peter, who had many faults, he denied Jesus also, Right, three times during the Passion. And the difference is that he eventually accepted the grace of Jesus and he changed. Now, how many of us are right here, just like Judas, that you're at church. You probably read your Bible. You probably pray. You probably fast. You probably do Sabbath. You probably do all these things. But you're not all that close to God. There's just something missing and even though Jesus is extending his love and his grace to you, it's just not connecting. Now, for any of you who question whether that you can be used by God, do you think anyone looked at these 12 disciples and thought, yeah, they are going to change the world? I mean, there's no way inexperienced, uneducated, no resources, no network, powerless. There's no political influence. No way. And you need to know that God is for you, that God gave his life for you. 
And no matter how far you think that you are from him, no matter how little you think of yourself, he can do incredible things through you for his glory. That is how he works. Let's pray. Lord, I want to lift up anyone who may feel a distance from you, that there is just something missing. And God, would they experience a deep intimacy with you? Something that is more than feelings, something that is more than emoting that joy or a different emotion, because I'm sure Judas experienced those things with you. I have a hard time believing that he didn't, as he's with you in Caesarea Philippi, or he's with you in Sea of Galilee in that boat, or he's with you in various places, that he didn't experience a connection with you. I find that really hard to believe. So God, I ask that it would be something more than just a physical connection, something more than just a mental connection, but Lord, that you would reach deep within their souls to encourage them that you do mighty things through the weakest of people, through the most foolish, and perhaps something that we need to repent of is just the pride that we are holding, thinking that we are more than we are. In Jesus' name, amen.